In 2022, women earn just 82 cents for every dollar a man makes, and that stat is even worse for women of color, with black women paid 58% of what white men were paid in 2022. In one lifetime, women are losing over a million dollars due to unequal pay. These statistics are exactly why I've started the Amplify Her Networking Group. For so long, I've wanted to start a group where women can connect with each other and talk about how to price our services, our products, proposals, workshops, classes, and be transparent about how much we're making and support each other in adjusting our goals to make more money. In the Amplify Her Networking Group, we're doing exactly that. We're talking about negotiating our salaries, looking for new jobs, creating financial wellness, and defining and refining our pitches so we can all build a dream list of partners, clients, and supporters. The Amplify Her Networking Group meets two times a month, and our next meeting is on March 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Interested in joining? Your first meeting is free. Head to AmplifyHerMedia.com backslash networking and sign up for your first meeting for free. Or you can head to the show notes and click on the link there. When we talk about pay equity, when we talk about supporting each other, we have more opportunities to make more money. So head to AmplifyHerMedia.com backslash networking to sign up for your first meeting for free. See you on Monday the 13th at 1 p.m. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Amplify Her podcast. I am your host, Christina Singh, and the Amplify Her podcast is all about amplifying and uplifting women's voices and stories. I am recording this on a beautiful morning, but there are also children outside who are going to school. So if you hear some lovely children in the background uh, living their best life, that is what's up. Um, Okay, let's dive into today's episode and today's guest. Um, You will definitely see from the title of this episode um, that I am interviewing Melly Ramirez this week. This interview is so powerful. It is really beautiful. There are so many layers to this conversation. Um, So many complexities, emotions, emotions. And I think what I would love as we're all going into listening to this conversation and and Melly's words is I would love for you to come in with an open heart and understanding. Um, Immigration is a an incredibly polarizing topic in our country, in the United States. And Melly's story is incredibly compelling. It is powerful. She is powerful. And I have a personal connection to um, to stories of immigration because my father was an immigrant and came to this country from India, um, met my mother and had myself and my brother. And um, so I feel very connected to these kinds of stories, my story widely varies from Melly's. Um, But in so much of this, I could find pieces of myself, I could find pieces of others, an understanding and a deep connection in the words that that she's saying and her story. So um, you might be familiar with Melly if you're a listener of this show because she is on the Amplify Her podcast network with her own podcast, Chingonas Only Club. So I will link Melly's podcast in the episode description. Um, her show is vulnerable, raw, really dives into so, so many topics around her life. And we reference a lot of them in this episode. So I would definitely recommend that, you know, you go check her show out and follow Melly and support her work. Um, Melly is a uh, member of our military. Her story of being a an illegal immigrant in this country and 
then becoming a citizen of this country and then joining our military and serving our country is one that I find so incredibly compelling. Um, So let's dive into this episode with the wonderfully brilliant Melly Ramirez. Um, Enjoy and go support Melly. One more thing I want to mention before we jump in is that you might hear sounds that sound like snoring in the background, little faint sounds, and that's because that is Melly's sweet, sweet puppy who is asleep behind us or behind Melly as she was recording this episode the whole time. Um, So enjoy those cute little sweet puppy noises. Nothing's wrong with the audio. It's just her cute little dog. All right, let's jump in. Melly, welcome to the Amplify Her podcast. I am so thrilled to have you. This is so long overdue. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. And yes, it's very much overdue. (laughs) Yeah, you and I um, connected through Veronica um, yeah. Castellanos, who hosts the Momster podcast, and you are a part of the Amplify Her podcast network. And yeah. I, um, I love your show. It's um, Chingonas Only Club, and you are the host. And um, when you and I first connected, I remembered thinking, um, oh my gosh, how cool that someone so incredibly busy wants to do this. And um, so for those who do not know about your show, um, I wanted to start with you quickly describing what exactly your show is and why you started your your podcast. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, Chingona's Only Club, um, I'm the only host of the show. I do occasionally have guests, but um, the main purpose of or the main reason why I started it was because I I felt like I had a story to tell uh, and it was my story, but I felt like it was something that I needed to share with other people, particularly other women, because everything that happened to me, of course, is from the female perspective. And um, yeah. I always felt very alone kind of coming up in the world. And I never felt like I could connect with anyone because I thought that these experiences were my own. And so really my goal was to talk about it and to connect with other women um, who might be struggling through similar things, who just wanted to feel validated and feel like a sense of sisterhood, you know, just through storytelling. And yeah, that was really the the biggest, the biggest purpose. And of, and of course, some of the topics are pretty rough, right? Because, you know, I think the female experience is pretty rough. Yeah. Right. Sexual assault, sexual abuse, domestic violence, along with our femininity, motherhood, and then that and that all kind of balances out and it's very raw. And so my whole goal with the podcast was to just talk about it all and just like I mentioned earlier, be an open book um to make others feel safe. Yes. What I thank you for sharing that. And what happened within you when you started sharing more? Because I know that you had wanted to do that for a while, but it's so different for your brain and your body when you start speaking these things out loud. So what happened in you when you started sharing more of your story? Honestly, um, initially it was almost like an alternative because I always wanted to write a book and I felt like I was never going to have the time to do that. And so when I did the podcast and I started talking about everything that happened to me um, and then getting people's questions and just having deeper conversations with people who heard the story and just wanted to connect, um, I actually think I started healing And it was an unexpected result of that. Um, My goal was not to heal myself. My goal was to help others heal themselves or get through this difficult time. And I didn't realize just how much I was holding in 
um, or had carried with me and exactly how all those things, both good and bad, had manifested in my life. Um, and I did an episode with um, Carmen uh, on her podcast, Carmen Shields, and and we talked about um, growth and how overcoming, you know, trauma and how we, you know, how our lives change and what we kind of went through in that healing journey. And, and it was, it was very unexpected, but it was probably more like therapy for me. And, um, and I think that if you, if I look at myself, uh, you know, cause it's almost been a year since I started the podcast. Wow. And, oh my gosh. I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in May. Um, so if I look at myself, you know, last year and where I am now, emotionally, mentally, um, I feel like a totally different person Mm -hmm. and it's insane that I can attribute that to this, you know, to the simple act of just speaking up and, and sharing my story. I, I love that so much because there, I mean, there are lots of studies about what happens when you are able to obviously calm your nervous system, but it's, there are also studies about, what happens when you sing or when you speak and how your brain changes and how it actually calms your vagus nerve to, to sing. Um, And I think what is so powerful about what you're saying is it doesn't have to be in this scenario of you starting a show of you getting on a mic and and talking. It was just the thing that you were pulled to, but the simple act in itself of sharing of talking to others has transformed who you are. And I want to get into your story, but I want to get into more of who you are and what you do because you are are a member of our military and that has a huge impact in your life. And I know you've described yourself as like being one person at work and then another person outside of work. So I would imagine that has a lot to do with this transformation as well. How long have you been a member of of the military and what led you down that path? So I have been in the Navy for almost 15 years, 15 years in March. Um, and I joined the military right after, um, returning from Mexico, probably about a month after coming back from, as you know, you know, from my deportation, I was deported and I was out of the country for two years. So when I came back, I didn't really have a path forward with life. Um, I think my family expected me to just pick up where I left off, which was continue going to school. Um, But what people don't realize is that when you are plucked out of your life and then you're just kind of dropped back in, you don't realize that everybody kept moving. And suddenly the life that you were put back into doesn't fit. Um, Everybody's moved on and done things and grown as people, as, as, as people do. And you were stuck in this like limbo and so joining the military for me was more of a way to speed up what I left behind. Um, I felt like I needed to catch up and I didn't have the time to go back to school and take one class at a time and figure out what I'm, I didn't have time for that. And so um I decided to join the, the military. So I was only home for about three weeks before I left for boot camp. Wow. And I didn't tell my mom because it would have devastated her. Yeah. Um, and she would have probably tried to talk me out of it because, you know, she had missed me for two years. And now here I was leaving again this time willingly. Um, and I knew they wouldn't understand my family and they didn't. Um, but I never expected this to turn into my life. Right. I did not expect the mil- like they didn't join the military. A lot of people, when you ask them why they join, a lot of them will say like a sense of duty. Uh, I just want to serve. A lot of them have um, family. It's a family background, right? Their family members have served and, and so on and so forth. They continue this legacy. And for me, um, I always told them that it, 
I was like, I, I know people don't like to hear this, but there's a lot of service members like me who just joined because they didn't really have anything else. Um, and I was very proud serving. Um, the pride that comes with serving was always there, regardless of the reason for joining. Um, but it was it was different for me um, because I was not fully I didn't feel fully accepted into the country that I was serving. And so it was like a huge kind of identity crisis that I went through for the past 15 years of my life um, to kind of figure out like who, like where do I belong, right? And, and who am I? And so, yeah, the, the military has been a huge part of my life, not just in terms of like my growth and my healing journey, but in terms of, really my identity and figuring out what who I was supposed to be who I was meant to be vice who I turned out to be yeah such a beautiful reflection on a decision that um led to so much more and I think joining the military is not a small decision and I have heard a number of stories of people going into the service who, like you said, had family members or they mm-hmm. had a desire to do this for a very long time. But I've heard stories of a lot of people similar to you of, well, I don't really have anything else. This is one thing that I I can do. Mm-hmm. And the structure and the consistency of it had really worked for their lives. But I think there's so much pressure on us to understand who we are at a very young age in our lives and and yes. and and just in general. <laughs> when I think we're naturally evolving all the time. But your story in particular that identity of I'm serving a country where I'm not sure where I belong, you know, in this country and, and that, that identity of um, acceptance and betrayal and understanding what that means for you is such a beautiful, honest reflection that I am sure many, many other people have not, not only in the military, but being in this country Mm -hmm. um, after an experience like yours would you mind um, explaining to people your experience of being deported and exactly how that happened? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I was born in Mexico and uh, my mom actually brought me here when I was uh, the first time she brought me here. I was only about 18 months old and I had a little brother who was only like four months old at the time. So um, she brought us both across the border illegally um, into this country, essentially because we were born in uh, we were born in a small town in Mexico with no electricity, no running water, no opportunities. And my mom had been essentially shunned by her family for being pregnant at 16. Um, And so they she didn't have anything or any prospects of her life. And she just didn't want that for us. Um, We grew up here our entire lives. uh, And by that, I mean, Los Angeles, because it's where she ended up. And we had a very um, strange kind of upbringing. It wasn't like your typical childhood, because from very early on, you understood that you were not supposed to be here, but you didn't really grasp the concept of why right um so our our mom would never allow us to talk to anybody about where we were born we were taught very early on not to say that we were born in Mexico we were taught you know very early on like to say that we were born in LA or you know whatever the case might be so we were masking who we were since we were children um and we weren't allowed to get to know people or allowed to let people get to know us so our friendships were always very superficial um I never had friends who really would ever know where my parents came from how they got here um never came to my house um never really knew what was happening with me um 
or anything like that growing up. And of course, I think that was the most shocking and devastating part of my life was never really getting to be myself or being able to talk to anyone about my experience or how I felt. Um, I remember like little things like I couldn't go like on a senior trip, um, which was like a tour of the South um, to follow the civil rights movement. And it was something that I was just so passionate about and I couldn't go because you needed um, to prove you needed proof like an identification from your parents to show Mm. that you know they were your legal guardian and my mom didn't even have a a, anything because you can't get any type of identification from the state if you're an illegal immigrant and I just said I wasn't interested and my teachers were, were like why not you would be great for this because there was um, scholarships involved for speaking while you're going on these trips or you'd be perfect for this you're so passionate about this and I had to constantly just pretend like th- I wasn't interested in that like I, like I don't care about that that's stupid right I had to be this like petulant teenager almost and let so many people down and they were always so confused as to like what the hell was it that I wanted yeah. and here I was getting amazing grades and had all the prospects and opportunity in the world but had zero ambition essentially is what they saw it as and it was never a lack of ambition it was I knew that I was limited I knew that I could only go so far and it wasn't something I could talk to them about I couldn't tell them like here's the thing because my mom had essentially scared us into thinking that if we shared anything that people who are just not kind would get us deported. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I ever wanted was to get deported and get separated from my family. Um, And so, yeah, I always just had to kind of pretend that I didn't want the things I want that I wanted um, as a way of like getting people to not ask me questions Right. Because if I said, I want to go, but my parents don't have an ID card, they're going to be like, well, why? And then we'd get into this whole conversation that I just I could never have. Um, And, you know, back in the day, there was no DACA. Right. There was no Mm -hmm. Dreamers Act. There was nothing like that. We were just constantly living in the shadows and um, it was a secret. And so um, when I turned 18, I realized that, you know, I graduated with a 4.0 GPA and I wasn't doing anything with it because I couldn't. My, my parents could certainly not afford it. Um, I couldn't even afford the college application because I think it was like $100 per application. And yeah, I remember that being a really big struggle for my family oh, as well. Yeah. Right. And, and some kids could get financial aid, but it required you putting down personal information, which I wasn't ready to share. And so I was like, no, I can't even apply, like even if I wanted to. And so I decided to apply for residency as an adult. And um, because I had turned 18 and there was a law at the time that um, essentially said, like, if you're an undocumented child who was brought to this country against your will by your horrible parents because that's kind of how it was worded right you're separating yourself from them which was very hard in itself um then you could qualify for residency and so that was the path that I took but unfortunately what I didn't know was that while they wouldn't hold the 18 years that I spent in this country illegally they were they were going to hold me accountable for every single day past 18 And so the time that it took for my application to be processed and me to get like a a response from immigration services was probably about a year and two months. And because of that year and two months, then technically I've been in this country and the only way for me to kind of apply through their process they weren't going to let me stay in this country. So it was either um, they gave me 30 days to vacate the country willingly, or um, I was going to get involuntarily deported and lose all um, 
pathways to being able to apply to residency. Wow. And so at 19, I just decided to leave and take a chance. There was no guarantee that they would approve me. There was no guarantee of anything. Um, And my whole family was like against it. Don't do it. They're never going to let you back. Um, Don't like just, it was a whole mess. Um, So I kind of had to, again, go against their wishes for me and, and, you know, burn a lot of relationships that way because I was turning my back on my family, essentially. I was leaving them. Um, And I left. So it was an involved, it was a voluntary deportation. Um, And then once I got there, I had to check in with immigration to let them know that I had exited the country and they had to verify that I was in fact there. Um, And between my mom and I, because I was working the whole time that I was in Mexico, between my mom and I, we um, just paid an immigration lawyer for two years. We had to just send her money every month, every month, every month, um, so that she can continue to keep an eye on my case. And it took about two years and two months. I came back um, right before my uh, 22nd birthday. I was finally back with my family as a temporary resident um yeah um so that was really hard um at that age you know you talk to any 18 year old now and they'll tell you they know the world right they'll tell you that they have all the answers and they have all their plans um and you as an adult you know that they don't know what they're talking about (laughs) (laughs) and that they're goofy so I was that 18 19 year old and I was kind of thrust into this very adult situation. I mean, since I was a kid, really, but that was survival. Um, you know, I experienced, I experienced so many horrible things while living in Mexico. I had to work there. I had to, you know, just, I had nobody. Um, yeah, I was wondering, because this is a story that we will hear. Yes. People either voluntarily or involuntarily being deported mm-hmm. when they've lived their entire lives in the United States. Mm-hmm. Where did you go? Who did you stay with? How, so how did you I, find a space? So I uh, went back to the town I was born in. Wow. Called Mestitlan Hidalgo. It's, in, it's south of Mexico City, about four hours south. And um, when I was there, they had electricity. They still didn't have running water. Um, there was no internet. There was no phones. There was, I mean, it, it's, it's a little town in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a poor, it's in poverty. It's, it's not a fancy town, but, you know, my, my grandparents lived there and they welcomed me with open arms. And um, I'll always be grateful to them for that because they kind of gave me a sense of purpose because I didn't know what to do when I got there. Um, and I would just help my grandma in her little, um, she had like a little convenience store, which is how she makes her living. Um, my mom, when she was in the U S working the whole time, it was so that she could build this little store so that her mom didn't have to work in the fields and she could work in this store where she sold, um, just like, dry goods and milk and things like that and so she was the only little store in that town so your um, mom was actively sending funds to yeah. her to be able to do yeah. that wow yeah yeah she built she built uh them a house um nothing big or fancy it was like a two-bedroom little house um that they could live in and she built them that little store um and so that was what my mom did for her parents and so when I went there, um, I would just help out in the store, you know, when my grandma was like cooking or feeding the animals or whatever it was, we had goats, cows, pigs, um, you name it. And sometimes I would swap with her and I'd go feed the animals. So it's a very <laughs> different um, um, life than what I had going on in LA, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, most people your age at the time would be going to college at that yeah. age, um, or getting their first job if they weren't going to college, but yes. partying and like going out yes. with their friends and no, none of that. 
this is a very different experience, but I think it's so important to talk about because it's so real for so many people who come to our country and Mm -hmm. who are trying to make a better life um, for their families. And I think something, I mean, maybe you feel the same way. I'm not sure, but something I realized when I had my son that was just like, it just smacked me in the face was my parents were just doing the best that they could. Yes. The absolute best that they could with mm-hmm. what they had in the tool and the tools in their toolbox. Yes. Do you feel that way now? Because it just sounds like your parents were trying to survive mm-hmm. and your mom was really trying to make the best life. I mean, she sounds, it sounds like she had two kids by 18, um, yeah. which is wild and mm-hmm. not uncommon around the world. And so yeah. it sounds like she was just trying to do the absolute best she could by making sure you guys were safe and had better opportunities. But with that also comes so many different things. Um, yeah. Do you feel that way or yeah. are you healing from that experience? Um. So yeah, when I started the podcast, that was one of the biggest things that I had to experience with, or to explore was the relationship that I had with my parents. And I realized that a lot of people thought it was crazy for, um, for even talking to my dad to this day. Mm. Um, because if you heard the podcast, I mean, you hear the first couple of episodes and you're like, that is a horrible human being. Um, and I agree. Mm-hmm. But I am a huge uh, believer in forgiveness, if you can. And I didn't think that I could heal without it. Um, and I don't, I know that it's not for everyone, but it was something that I felt I needed to do in order to move forward. And I don't know who said this, but um, I read somewhere that, you know, for first gen immigrants, Um, They said our parents were tasked with the task of survival and us with the task of self-actualization. And that hit me really hard when I first heard it. But through this journey, I realized that 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 was that's not necessarily the case. That Yes, my parents were tasked with the task of survival, but I am not at the space where I can self-actualize. I feel like my kids will be that. Right. because I wasn't the first gen that was born in this country. I was an immigrant in this country, mm-hmm. just like my parents. And so sorry, yeah. um, and so while my parents were surviving, um, if I had born, been born in this country, yes, self-actualization would have been my goal. But unfortunately, um, we were kind of, it was almost like they were, you know, the first version and I was like version 1.5. I see what you mean. No, I, <laughs> I, I totally see kids, what you mean. Yeah. Like my yeah. kids will be, my kids will be the ones that actually get to self-actualize. They're the ones that are never going to have to be tasked with having to make me proud, having to make me feel like my sacrifices were worth it because that's yeah. what I felt I was charged with. Like, well, Yeah you had so much to carry on your shoulders. And I think what I nearly like burst into tears when you were talking about um, the part where little Melly wanted to go on that field trip and (sighs) wanted to go on that trip and you had to mask your desire and Mm -hmm. what you want and what you wanted in this world. And you had to play down how excited you were to go learn and Mm -hmm. to explore something. And just the fact, even I'm even getting emotional, just saying it, like the fact that your teachers are like, but this would be so great for you. What are you talking Mm -hmm. about? What do you mean? You were charged with a lot of responsibility to parent yourself in Mm -hmm. those ways. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you had, you know, your mom parenting you and all of these different ways, but in those ways you had to parent yourself and, and protect yourself, which I would imagine led to having a hard time being honest and verbalizing what you actually want or, or even understanding what you actually want. Yeah. And 
you know, the crazy part is that um, I did an episode on parentification and I, and I think that that was almost the, the example that I used was that my mom had no idea that I was going through all this. Um, I never told her that this was happening in school. I never told her that I, I couldn't apply to colleges. I never told her that I, you know, um, that my friend paid for my uniform so that I could play basketball. I never told her anything that would make her feel bad. Like she's not doing a good job as a parent. Um, yeah. And, and that was, that was part of the, the struggle for me because it was almost like I was, I was also taking care of my mother. Um, you know, right. she's very you were. young and I, and I told, and I tell people this all the time. My mom and I had a terrible relationship uh, when I was growing up. I mean, we fought like sisters when we weren't, mm, but mm -hmm. when you look at the age, you know, my mom was 25 when I was like 10 or yeah I'm doing math but <laughs> no, no, no. but you know look think of where you are when you're 25 and think of where you are when you're 32 um you know I'm 37 now and just now I feel like I've got this whole parenting thing down and it's my third kid um and and I was my mom's first and she never had time to stop and reflect what it was that she was doing as a parent um, because she was too busy surviving. She was too yeah. busy working. She was too busy. Um, you know, my mom never checked my grades. Um, and I always got straight A's. She never checked my grades. I didn't have anyone to go home to and be like, look, I got a straight A report card. Like, yeah, you know, be proud of me. I don't even know now like what it was that even drove me to be a good student. Like, I have no idea because there was nothing or no one there to say, you have to do your homework. You have to. Yeah. And my, and my brothers, I have two younger brothers. We all were really good students. And I think it wasn't because someone was checking our grades or anything. It was because we always felt like we had to work harder and and do things better to show people that we belonged here yeah you know, the, the idea when I went to my my uh, immigration appointment the lawyer collected every single thing that I had from you know the time that I had been in this country including my report cards including like, like a little essay I wrote in the third grade that oh you know, it just happened to save. And, and then I think that's when it hit me that, you know, that I was like, here's all the proof that I'm a good person. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, like, yeah. God, I'm gonna make myself cry. Like the um, merits of what you know? that even means, like, right. accept me, accept me, accept me. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, I had nothing else to show except like my report cards, I had nothing else. Um, because it wasn't enough to just be right. It, it's like I had to prove myself to, to these people who didn't even know my name. And I think that that's what I healed from in the past year, because thinking that you essentially your worth and your value is is in pieces of paper rather than you as a as a human yeah was extremely harmful right because it led to and, and this is a, you know a lot of first-gen immigrants suffer from this right they they suffer from severe anxiety they suffer from depression they suffer from feeling like the constant weight of the world on their shoulders because we always are carrying the dreams of our parents on our backs and what it is that they envisioned for us and we can't let them down but on this side you have society and, and this country and their view on immigrants and you don't want to be a stereotype but you want to prove that you're good enough and you also want to be accepted 
but you also want to maintain your culture. And it's this horrible, like, balancing act that you do. And at one point or another, and I think it happens to every first gen, something's going to fall. Yeah. One of those things is going to fall. And, and it's really, I think, up to you to decide which one that is. Um, and for me, it was the acceptance. Like, I no longer wanted to be accepted. Mm-hmm. And in any way, shape or form, I stopped caring about trying to prove myself because I never told myself that I was good enough. And so for me at that point, I was like, okay, enough is enough. Like I've done enough. I've put up with enough. I've carried enough. And I decided at that point that I wanted to do something that made me happy. Mm-hmm. And that was sharing my story. And I wanted to do something that helped me feel connected because I never felt that before to anyone. What is so wild, Melly, is like everything you're saying is so gorgeous, so true. And I think what's so important also is that this has taken you this much time. Yeah. It's not gonna happen overnight you're figuring it out yeah you're trying to understand exactly this element of what you wanted and what you desired from others Mm -hmm. and you have been in the military for 15 years you have three children (laughs) you're not talking about this experience at 24 Mm -mm. You're talking about at 37 because it's, and I think that's so important for people to hear because as hard is that, as that is to swallow that healing and understanding what you need and what you desire and who you are takes time. Mm -hmm. It's also for the other people who are like you and the same age, that is an opportunity to walk through yeah. a new door mm-hmm. and what you did have to hold was far far too heavy for you and I know those experiences make us who we are and mm-hmm. you're shaped by them um I just cannot stop thinking about all of the other little girls just like you yeah all of the other little girls who have to hold mm-hmm. all of that and deny what they want mm-hmm. and deny going on the field trip and not telling their parents, you know, all of mm-hmm. the accomplishments that they're having. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, you said, um, all of these things, they make us who we are. But the fact of the matter is that it didn't have to be that way. Exactly. And, and I think that that's also part of my goal with sharing my story. It's not just for people who are in my shoes. It's for the people who are on the opposite side of this issue. Um, it's so easy for us to write off immigrants because we don't know them. And I think that I have... There's no greater pleasure for me, at least. I still enjoy it um, because I'm in the military. I've been serving for 15 years and people are always so kind to service members. So kind. You know, they'll, they'll see you on the street in your uniform when we're out for lunch or something. And it's always like, thank you so much for your service. They'll go out of their way to shake your hand. Um, and sometimes like, I don't even know what to say, right? I'm just like, oh, like, no, thank you. That's so kind of you to say. Um because it's, it's a huge sacrifice, but at the same time, you know, it's the people that are shaking my hand, my hand who are wearing, you know, Trump hats and MAGA hats. And I wonder if their perspective would ever shift if they knew who I was, right. Would they, would they think me still, would they look down at me would they think that I'm less than? Would they think that I don't deserve to be wearing that uniform? Um, and those are those are the tough conversations. And I think that that I wish to have because 
I think that when they picture a face of this issue, it's not me who they picture. Um, and I always, like I said, I take great pleasure in having these conversations with people only to share at the end that I was, I once was an illegal immigrant and their jaws yeah. just drop on the floor and they have no idea what to say. They feel embarrassed. Um, they don't, they don't know how to react and I'm not doing it to embarrass them, but I'm doing it to prove a point to say that you don't actually know the people that this issue impacts. You have a stereotype built in your head about who these people are and what these people have to offer or what and, they're trying to take and what they're trying to take. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm me, you know me, you've known me for years. In some cases, these people have known me for years. And when I share that piece of myself with them, they're just kind of in awe because they're like, they, they're embarrassed. And honestly, if you believe in something so strongly and it's something that you genuinely think is good, like you should never be embarrassed right? If you're embarrassed, Ooh, that's you're so saying, good. <laughs> yes. If, if you if you stand by your beliefs, and you feel that you're the things that you believe in are righteous and good and kind, and you're doing it in the name of your country, you shouldn't be embarrassed. Let's talk about it. But the fact of the matter is they can barely look me in the eye when when it happens. And that tells me that they're not hateful because they can't hate me they're ignorant on the issue and that is what I seek is, is an opportunity to have that conversations um, let me be the person that you that you remember when you think of this issue right and because I still have my mom is still an illegal immigrant she's a street vendor in LA um, my brother is a DACA recipient. Um, he works for nonprofit immigration services, like legal services. Um, like those are the people, right? Those are the real people. And yes, we have people who are coming to this country from other countries and just seeking asylum. And they have a totally different story to tell. But what I'm saying is we're all here for a reason. We're not here to take your jobs we're not here to ruin this country we're not here to do any of these things some of us are here to serve this country oh my god exactly <laughs> so and and it's i think that the thing that strikes me so much in what you just so beautifully said is your human we're all human where yeah. and and the disconnect is not being face to face and talking with another human about yeah. their story and understanding it and that can be said for so many issues in our country mm -hmm. yeah my father came here illegally i am the child of uh, of an immigrant Mm -hmm. And I have two half siblings who came to this country after I was born and I have one sibling. So I am very familiar mm -hmm. with the, this story, but my perspective is so different from yours mm -hmm. and connecting with you is helping me to better understand your story and to put a blanket statement on a group of people is never helpful. No. It's always harmful. And I think one of the, the beautiful um, threads of your story is that you are serving this country. And uh, after hearing so much more about your experience, I have, I have no um, blame for you for having an identity crisis of like, <laughs> well, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Because I'm told I don't belong here, mm -hmm. but I did a lot of work to fit in and belong mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And I am a member of the military. And then 
people come and shake my hand and say, thank you. Thank God you're here. Mm -hmm. Thank God you, you do belong here. I'm so grateful you're here. Mm -hmm. And then those same people are talking about how you don't belong here. Yeah. It's hypocritical. It's hypocritical and it's a mind fuck. Uh Like it's, it's too much for, you know, I'm like, well, we're here to take your jobs and I you know I there was a a fellow navy sailor um who I had a conversation with and he's like you know we we there's not enough jobs in this country for Americans and he knew who I was he knew my story so he felt like he was equipped to have this conversation with me and you know I I always I'm always open to it as long as it remains like neutral and respectful I'm open to it I'm like, okay, like I don't get triggered easily anymore. I can have these tough conversations and then I can move on um, because it's the military. Like I don't have a choice. So I'm going to work. With you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he, he was like, you know, there's not enough jobs in this country. And I was like, I don't see a line outside recruiting offices. Do you? Because nobody was there when I went to take this job because at the end of the day, like that's what it is. And you can preach all you want about, you know, immigrants taking jobs. But the fact of the, ma- of the matter is that there's, you know, there's a, a lack of there's a lack of recruitment and people who want to serve this country. Um, and, and you have people who would give an arm and a leg to serve this country and they can't. Um, I was fortunate enough to at that point in my life be able to serve. But before that, there I hadn't I could have yeah. never. Um, you couldn't even go on a trip for school. Right. Just a simple like school trip that people yeah. don't even think about, you know, anything. I mean, it was insane. And so I'm like, you can't, you can't say that and make a blanket statement and then not make it the same in reverse. You know, where are the red blooded Americans who want to serve their military? Where are they? Um, you know, the recruiting offices are empty. So you, you can't say that, you know, we're taking jobs, but also not point out the fact that there's people who, aren't, who don't want to serve this country. And then yet here yeah. we are and you're shunning us because we're not you, essentially. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's interesting because I thought that only, you know, when you're, when you're looking at an issue and you're young, you think that you're the only one, like almost like the world revolves around you. Yeah. Um, and then you realize that there's other people experiencing the same level of identity crisis, but it has nothing to do with the same, with the issue that you're dealing with. When the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement kicked off, I would say like in 2019, I think was when it was the height of it. Um, there was a lot of uh, anger right in the black community and a lot of just disenchantment with this country and everything that was happening because of all of the men that were being killed you know at the hands of police brutality and when there was riots in the cities in major cities like here Seattle um, you know and other other cities across the country the military was sent in at one point um, to push back some of the writers. And there was this video of a young black man. He was in his uniform and he had to stand there in uniform and be the line of defense to protect property against his own community, against people who were angry at the same stuff that he was angry about. Right. And instead of um, understanding and acknowledging that that was a familiar face in the crowd and maybe taking a little empathy and understanding that, hey, this individual, that must be hard for him. You know, um, they got in his face and they were telling him that he was a traitor and how could he serve this organization when his brothers and sisters were being killed and murdered. And. I remember watching that clip and I was crying because at that moment I, I empathized and I realized that that was part of my identity crisis. That was, that was part of what I was feeling because I knew that 
no matter how successful or how much I'd accomplished in my life, there was still this horrible sense of guilt of the people that I left behind. Um, my mother is still, you know, selling tacos in LA. Um, and as much as I want to bring her with me, she can't go to military bases because she doesn't have a social security card. She doesn't have a state ID. She doesn't have any of that. If she goes to a military base, she could be arrested and subsequently deported. My mother, I've served this country yeah. for 15 years. And, and some people would look at me and instead of thanking me for my service, they would call me a hypocrite, right? That I've strayed from my community. Um, and that's something that I have to struggle with every single day because you know I was born in Mexico right like I grew up there the first couple of years of my life after my dad dumped us there I think I don't know if you heard that story but um like that's 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 home to me that's where I have my earliest childhood memories and then I was plucked out of that life and brought here and it is what it is like it, I, to me it was destiny I'm here for a reason but I can't change that and I can't it's almost like I can't balance it and I think a lot of people yeah. who are serving they they don't know how to reconcile who they are in the military vice who they're they want to be at home and who they want to be in their community and you know, in society, it's so different. Yeah. Well, I think something you're really touching on is white supremacy culture and the, the depths of systemic racism in our country and how it bleeds into everything Yeah, and how that can lead to all of these um, contradictions and these this questioning of identity because white supremacy culture relies so heavily on these characteristics of perfectionism and quality or quantity versus quality Mm -hmm. and um, one right way of doing something and I think that it is completely understandable to me that you would have and other members of the military and and other folks uh, you know who um are related to members of the military would have these crises or just simply people who came to this country in illegally in the way that you did and yeah. you know are have grown up trying to love a a space but not feeling accepted by that same space and you know one of the biggest things that I saw growing up was my dad was discriminated against in various ways, or it took him so much longer to, to rise in his career. Um, he was very well respected, but he still, you know, had a lot of struggles and, you know, both my older siblings are incredibly successful humans and, um, they came to this country and had to, have that battle of proving I am worthy of being here. Mm-hmm. And I think everything you're saying is because you were saying I, at so, so during so many times in my life, I felt alone. Like I was the mm-hmm. only person with this yeah. story. I think so many people mm-hmm. share your story. And I think yeah. that's the thing people do not understand who have the views against um, folks coming into our country is like, there are yeah. so many people who are here trying to make a life and better themselves or just feel like mm-hmm. they are accepted. Yeah. Yeah. And the military is, you know, a very diversified organization, right, of, of men, women, black, white, Asian, it doesn't matter. Like, I work with, with every single one of them on a day-to-day basis. Um, and still, and still we experience the same thing that everybody else does in society when it comes to racism, discrimination, sexism, misogyny, all of that stuff, except 
that for us, we don't have, and, I, and I'll say it's the, what is it? What is the word I'm looking for? We don't have the luxury of being able to walk away from it. Right. Ignore those people. Right. So, um, no matter what, I have to continue working with that individual for the next three or four years. Right. No matter what. Now I can try to address it. I can try to, you know, whatever the case might be, but it doesn't change the fact that at their core, these people can be racist. These people can be sexist, misogynist, whatever the case might be. And I have to figure out every time how to be the bigger person and work with this individual. And Mm -hmm. I think that when people look at us and say that we're hypocrites because we're serving this organization and we've turned our back, they don't realize that we're fighting the same battle on this side. They don't realize that it's a lot harder because we're forced to fight it. You know, I think in the civilian world, like you can just avoid someone. Be like, oh, I don't like that person. Don't need to talk to them ever again. Goodbye. You can't do that here. (laughs) Um, It's a small Navy. As big as it is, I've run into the same people in different commands who I hate it. And I'm like, here we are again on the other other side of the country. Why? I don't understand it. It's because it's a, it's as big as an organization as it is. It's a small organization. Um, right. Well, I think. I think oh, go ahead. No, I, and I and I think it's important for people to understand that, right? Um, and as women, we fight the same battles. Just because I'm in a, a predominantly male organization, it doesn't mean that I don't understand. Um, you know that I empathize with them or that I've somehow learned to see things from their side just because, you know, I'm a chief in the Navy and I'm more often than not, I'm in charge. I'm, it has, it doesn't change the fact that I am a woman and that I had to experience the same things that, you know, you do out in the world every single day and probably worse because I can't get away from it. Most people in leadership positions are men. I have to deal with that. They're my bosses, my supervisors, my, you know, all of these things. And I can't change that. Yeah. Well, I think what is something that you said about being the bigger person, I think reflects, and I can't believe we're at our time. Uh, This flew by. Um, But that reflects into the bigger picture of being the bigger person in this country and having to work with this country in within the realms of uh, within all of the boxes that you've been put in and having to be that bigger person against all of the things thrown at you, all of the stereotypes, all of the, you know, hatred towards this specific group or the misconceptions. You've had to be the bigger person over and over and over again, which I think is why you sharing how you feel and connecting with others and sharing your story and healing is so important because you're mm-hmm. giving yourself an opportunity again to, like you said, release that acceptance yeah. piece. So yeah. as you're looking to the future, what is your hope for yourself in this next chapter? Um, I would I think that the reason why I wanted to heal more than anything um, was my children. Um, My oldest is 12 and I always regret that he got the worst version of me as a parent, as a human, as everything. And that's, that's a guilt that I don't think I'll ever be able to shed. Um, And so I think my goal is to just continue healing so that maybe I can make up for that and, and just be, good for them so that they don't have to carry this forward with their children or their you know their friends their family whatever the case may be and ultimately to show people that it's not your responsibility to be the bigger person but if you want to see some sort of change in the world and if you want to heal you're gonna have to because if you are basing your ability to heal on everybody else's ability to change Unfortunately, that's, that's way far-fetched. 
and 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 you're kind of you're going to be waiting for a very long time and and people around you are the ones that are going to be hurt by it so i i think that i just want to continue to share my story i want to continue to talk to women about their stories and learn from them i want to make sure that people know that they're not alone in this um and that it's okay i'm i yeah. i still cry about things that happened to me when I was three or four or five, and they might be so silly, but I never got a chance to cry when I was three, four, or five. Right. Yeah. And so um, I want to just say that it's okay. And that healing is okay. And sharing and just being who you want to be. Um, and, and healing that inner child part of yourself is, it's okay. Yeah. Oh. Melly, thank you so much for joining. Um, the show. I loved talking to you about your story and I loved exploring this particular avenue of it and, and just hearing your experience. I think a lot more people need to hear stories like this and, and better understand other other people's journeys. And obviously that's one of the, the biggest reasons why I started this show is yeah. so I can better understand, you know, it could get more stories and voices out into the world that need to be heard. Um, so thank you. I also loved hearing your puppy snoring. And <laughs> I know, I'm so sorry. He doesn't even no. he's, he's unbothered. So unbothered. He, he is, is hi Mars. So cute. Hi. <laughs> How are you? Thank you so much for being a part of this interview. I love you. <laughs> he's so cute. He's just like, I want to be him. He looks like he's the snoring. most comfortable. Listen, if you could see this dog, he's literally like in blankets like a human on the cover <laughs> like on the pillow like a human he put himself in there too. I'm, but he, he just wrapped himself in bed i'm gonna there. post a photo i'm gonna take a screenshot of him and put it online when this episode comes out because like he's really the star of this episode yes, like oh my god mars. <laughs> hi mars you just snoring you're the best Oh, well, thank you so much you for, for joining. This is great. I appreciate it. Of course. And never forget, if you're listening to this show, that your story matters, your voice matters. And I will see you on the next episode of the Amplifier podcast. Bye, everyone. The Amplify Her podcast is a part of the Amplify Her Media Network. You can check out more shows on the Amplify Her Media Network over on Instagram at Amplify Her Media.